Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Today is a returning guest, Sean Hildebrand, who is the president of Urban Nation. Welcome back, Sean. This is Sean's third appearance on the podcast, so we're, we're going to skip kind of forward and not kind of follow our typical process. But Sean, I mean, before we get into some of the numbers and what we're seeing in the current stage, it's May 29th, I believe, 2020. So we're in the middle of you know, quarantine, just a date stamp so that when people are listening to this, they kind of know what the current situation is. Before we go forward and kind of start talking about some of the numbers, just quickly, maybe just talk about for those that are, are not familiar, you know, what Urbanation does and what your, your general modus operandi is. Sure. Thanks again, guys, for having me back on. So Urbanation is a small research and consulting firm based here in Toronto. Our focus is on the GTA condominium and rental apartment markets. The firm was actually started almost 40 years ago, started tracking the market when uh, the new condo industry just starting to emerge. Our business is uh, a subscription-based model where we provide our subscribers with database access to new construction condominium project information and uh, quarterly uh, data updates. We also track the resale market and the uh, the rental market and uh, commercial property sales across the region. So essentially, we're tracking market data for almost every sector of the real estate industry in the GTA. We also have a consulting business, so quite often developers will come to us and request market feasibility studies for new condominium developments or purpose-built rental apartment developments. So those would be sort of done on a custom requested basis, but represents a very large portion of our business as well. So between those two, we're, we're very busy for a small team and always looking to new things to expand into as well. Let's jump into it. Sean is a numbers guy. If you've listened to any of his previous episodes, he's brought great data to the show. And you know we always appreciate it. And we hop around a few asset classes, but they're all under the umbrella of you know residential. So let's start with condo. I know that there's been some interesting headlines recently about the condo market, but it'd be great to what you're seeing in terms of the numbers that are actually available. And you know this would be you know, resale numbers, valuations, if I'm a condo developer, what am I looking at right now? Yeah. So obviously there's different amounts of information depending on what side of the market you're looking at. Certainly in terms of the pre-construction market, there's really not a whole lot to report on, unfortunately, in the post-COVID-19 period. But Q1 was an exceptionally strong quarter for new condominium sales. There was over 5,600 units sold in the first quarter of the year, second highest first quarter on record and up 85% from the first quarter of 2019. And absorption was exceptionally strong. The units sold very quickly. But I think one thing to point out here is that most of the projects that launched in Q1 launched in February. So they didn't really get caught in that transition period from pre-COVID to post-COVID. So it allowed them to continue to absorb very quickly. There wasn't really an an inventory overhang as a result of, of COVID. So the fact that there really weren't any projects launched during March, maybe aside from one, allowed inventories to remain low as we've moved through the post-COVID period and overall absorption to remain high. So I think when you look at the new condo market, it was in a really good spot heading into this current situation. And so far, 
We've seen very little, by the way, of new condo launches, which is very similar to what we were experiencing as the recession in uh, late 2008, early 2009 hit. In fact, we've only had, I would say, two confirmed launches in the post-COVID-19 period, both happening in April. We had a release of about 130 units at the second phase of Notting Hill out in uh, Eglinton West in Etobicoke North near Royal York, and it sold well. It was 76% sold when it, when it launched, but at uh, pretty competitive price points when you take a look at it in relation to benchmark levels in the city of Toronto, the average price was around 9.15 a foot, whereas you know if you went downtown and you saw new project launch pricing in Q1, you know, it was often above $1,300 a square foot, reaching close to $1,500 a square foot in some cases. So I think, you know, the fact that it was an affordably priced project in a location that was sort of, you know, within the urban fringe, it continued to attract pretty strong investor demand, which was, I think, surprising to some. We also saw a pretty small project launch out in Whitby in April as well, just a you know, 50, 60 unit building, $600 a square foot. As you can imagine, it sold pretty quickly as well. About half the units were, so, were sold right at launch. So these are really the only examples that we have so far. There, there was a launch that was expected to happen last weekend on the Queensway that got postponed. So we'll, we'll wait and see. For right now, the feedback that we've gotten from the industry is that the projects that were anticipated to launch this spring are for the most part being delayed until the fall. And we did a survey to that effect. And Close to 60% of those launches were actually expected to come in within the next six months. So I think the industry is, is looking at this in sort of a cautiously optimistic way and uh, expecting that things will kind of be on the shelf for a little while, but an improvement happening kind of in the third or fourth quarter of this year. So it'll be interesting to see if these launches do occur and what sort of level of absorption they'll get when they do come out. Because you got to wonder, with the delays being launched, if it wouldn't be similar what most people are experiencing with their back-to-work policies, where every you know every couple of weeks you get an email saying, "Oh, we're going to be pushed out another couple of weeks," then you get another email because your crystal ball predictions right now are difficult as they are you know in any crisis. So, it'll be interesting to see who actually goes. I would love to be a fly on the wall of the two sales centers that did launch in April. I would love to to hear the rationale. I'm glad to hear it went well. But if you were sitting in a boardroom in March talking about when to launch. The idea of launching in April would be a pretty pretty aggressive move. So good to them for being the only game in town right now selling. Interesting move for sure. Yeah. And, you know, for the rest of the developments that were still sort of actively marketing, but, you know, didn't launch in the last eight to 10 weeks, they moved to a virtual sales model. So, there, you know, there's an adjustment happening. That, I mean, the sales are still occurring. They're not obviously happening at the same volume as they did in the uh, pre-COVID period, but um, they're adapting. And I think, you know, the days of having those big launches with rooms packed full of realtors at pre-sale openings are, are probably done for the foreseeable future. So I think the industry is is quickly, you know, retooling to be able to move to a more virtual model. And the fact that two projects launched, even though they were sort of in limited volume, uh, did well, I think is a, an early good sign, I think, for the market. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see some improvements as well in the, in the resale markets. The volumes are down pretty dramatically when you look at them year over year a 72% plunge in April for condo resales. But, you know, if you look at sort of the trend over the last few weeks, it looks like activity has started to pick up through May. So it it may suggest that we hit a bit of a a near-term bottom at least. And some of the metrics like the sales to new listings ratio is starting to improve and that's helping to support pricing. All of these sort of things I think are are going to help to improve confidence in the industry so long as we don't see, you know, 
another downturn, which is of course not not out of the cards. You brought it up, Sean, because and I wanted to ask this question because we've had this conversation before, and I and I still can't make heads of it anyway. So, can you define that sales new listings ratio and and why it's important? Yeah, well, it's it's effectively a, a measure of demand and supply, and um, the market has been used to seeing that ratio like above 60%, in some cases above 70%, which is characteristic of a seller's market. Typically, when you see the sales to listings ratio above 55%, it would indicate that the market is in seller's market territory. And with that, you see strong upward pressure in pricing. Typically, when you're within 40 to 55%, it's considered to be a balanced market. When you look back at the relationship between that ratio and price appreciation and days on market and things like that historically, we moved actually in April to 40%, which is right at sort of the cusp of the buyer's market. But as we progressed through the first couple of weeks of May, we actually saw that ratio move up to about 47%. So more comfortably within the range of a balanced market. So actually, as that happened, we, we saw a year-over-year increase in average resale condo prices. While they were down 1.7% in April 2020, they actually moved up year-over-year by 1.8%. So suggesting that some of those some of those declines were perhaps reversed, but I'd be very careful at this point in reading too much into the resale numbers because they're just at such a low volume. Like they're three and a half times lower than what they normally would be. So when you're dealing with a huge drop off in activity, it's tough to make a lot of sense of the numbers because it's difficult to compare them to previous periods. And you know, when you look at the, the average selling price statistics as they stand right now, it would suggest that prices are down by you know about ten percent from where they were at their peak in, in February March, but you know there's a lot of statistical noise behind those data points in that we were seeing for one a big shift towards uh, the higher end of the market in the first quarter of 2020, whereas in the post COVID 19 period we've seen a pretty dramatic pullback in the high end of the market and a really strong increase in the share of condo units that are priced below $500,000. So with that, it tends to have a downward pull on the average selling price statistics. So I, I think the true decline in, in price that we've seen from peak to trough so far is, is somewhere in the middle. I, I would imagine that you know it's, it's kind of in the 5% range. I think we have seen some deflation, but it's not as strong as the headline statistics would suggest. The fact that we still see units sell at very close to asking price. In fact, in April, condos were selling at 99% of asking price and an average of 18 days on market. So there's still a lot of liquidity in the market. And I think, you know, because of how strong market demand was in the pre-COVID-19 period, there was spillover demand that still allows units that are on the market to continue to transact. There's been a lot of people that have been priced out of the market or outbid over the last year, two years, even three years. So now I think they're recognizing that the market has shifted. It's moved into a, into a balanced market and it may be their chance, their only chance in some cases to get in. And, you know, they're looking at it, I think, they, or at least I'd have to imagine with a longer term view, because obviously there's downside risks that prices could fall further. And, and obviously we've seen some calls come out from, from the various bank economists and, and more recently from CMHC suggesting that that could be in the magnitude of, of 10 to 20%. But I think some are sort of looking at it as their their chance to get in. And if they can find an affordably priced unit, they'll jump on it. And and I can tell you that even in in this current lockdown situation, there's there's no shortage of demand for condos priced below five hundred thousand dollars. Actually, I was pretty surprised that there was as many as there are. I thought that uh, it was sort of a unicorn at this point because the prices had grown so much. But apparently, 
we're seeing a pretty big shift into those uh, less expensive suites. So in the pre-COVID time that you're referring to, well, you just referred to uh, the current market as being balanced. Would you describe the previous market as frothy or imbalanced? How would you describe it now looking back on what was going on at uh, the end of last year? Yeah, it was definitely in seller's market territory. So we were in we were in balanced state for almost a couple of years. So after we went through our mini correction in 2017, the market dropped, right? We saw housing prices rise very quickly between Q1 2016 and Q1 2017, actually by about 30%. And then within the few quarters that followed, we saw about a 15% correction. So after that happened, after we gave back some of that froth that happened in late 2016, early 2017, the market kind of settled and it settled within a balanced range. And we were seeing very gradual increases in pricing. But as we hit the fourth quarter of 2019, first quarter of 2020, we started to see that double digit rate of inflation return, particularly for condo apartments. And actually, I was getting a little concerned that the market was starting to overshoot again based on the sales and listings ratio numbers and and, and all the other demand and supply indicators that we were looking at. It would sort of suggest that that trend was going to continue for the rest of the year. Why do you think the market was, as you indicate, kind of potentially overshooting itself? Like, Why do you think there was that inflation that was occurring in Q1 2020? What was driving it? There's always an adjustment period after you implement you know, mortgage policy. And, and I think that was the case again. So obviously, with the changes to the stress test coming in in early 2018 and, and other measures that came in, such as the foreign buyers tax, there's typically an 18-month 12 to 18 month adjustment period after that happens. And um, like I said, there was a price correction and the market was sort of finding its footing. And I think what was happening was that as the market restored itself in terms of the balance of demand and supply, we sort of looked back at the fundamentals and they were strengthening, right? Interest rates were declining. Population growth over the last couple of years were at one of their highest levels on record. Job growth in the GTA was, was exceptionally strong. So these fundamental factors, I think, were we're leading to stronger rates of, uh, of, of sales and, and price appreciation. And then I'd have to imagine that investment demand as well started to pick up. We were seeing that happening in the condo market for sure. One way of gauging investment demand is a look at how quickly new units that are launched for pre-sale are in fact being absorbed. Because obviously we know that when a new condo project launches, it, it typically offers its units first to platinum brokers, VIP brokers who usually go to their investor clients first. And the fact that these units sell quickly is is usually an indicator that investor interest is high. So we started to see those absorption rates rise back up close to 2017 levels. So it was providing indications to us that we were seeing broad-based demand strengthening, not only from end users because of the improvements in fundamentals, but also investors, I think, were starting to jump back in. Part of that could have been foreign, but I think a lot of domestic demand as well after, again, that correction from 2017 played out. So, you know, as COVID came in, it, it, it kind of stopped it in its tracks, which I think was actually a good thing. <laughs> Not a good thing that, that COVID happened, but the fact that we, you know, we, we moved away from this period where prices were starting to inflate very quickly to one where they're starting to even out. And, and I think that was kind of what, what the market needed. I would actually say if, if COVID hit three years ago in the first quarter of 2017, we would be in for a much sharper correction than what we're probably in store for this time. I promise not to just clip out the you saying, I'm glad COVID-19 happened as an attention-grabbing way to get people to listen to the episode. But <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do get the gist of what you're saying that uh, is well-intentioned. Much like the government intervention meant to cool the market, this happened and it's not necessarily, necessarily a bad thing. That's the uh, title of the podcast. 
<laughs> Sean Hildebrand, <laughs> glad COVID happened. <laughs> so Sean, while we're sticking on the topic on condos, you know, I'm curious, and, and I'm not sure exactly how to frame this, whether it's pre-COVID, current COVID, or post-COVID, and, and maybe you can pick and choose or cover all three, but were there distinctions between what you were seeing in the condo market between sort of the 416 jurisdiction and the 905? What were the distinctions? So with respect to the condo sales market, we were seeing a pretty pretty notable shift in sales activity into the 905. And I think that that happened as we were recognizing a record premium in 416 prices, more specifically downtown core prices versus, you know, sort of the outer 416 in the 905 region. And I think investors and condo buyers started to become much more focused on end selling price values and recognizing that there was a record premium there that's emerged. And as that happened, we started to see the 905, in fact, take over in terms of sales volume of new condos. Last year, 905 had the most condo sales within the GTA. So so more than the sort of former city of Toronto and, and more than the outer 416. And that happened as demand shifted really below $1,000 a square foot. Because once you move into the 416, you're pretty close to $1,000 a square foot, if not higher. And then once you get into the downtown core, condo prices had risen on average to around $1,300 a square foot. And you know, even with a small unit size, let's take 600 square feet, for instance, in the downtown market, you're going to be paying over $800,000 on average for that unit. And if you take that same unit, and move it into the 905 region, you're paying less than $500,000. So that price discrepancy drove a lot of demand, not only from end users, but investors as well, that were looking for well-located markets in the 905, such as Mississauga City Center, such as Vaughan Metropolitan City Center. All of these markets were outperforming the rest of the, uh, rest of the GTA over the last year. Not to say that there wasn't demand for downtown core sites, because there was, but they were in more limited volume than they used to be. Um, there isn't a lot of opportunities left in the downtown core for large-scale new condominium launches. And in fact, the number of new units sold in the downtown area of Toronto last year was at its lowest level since 2013. And that wasn't demand-driven, that was supply-driven. So as that's happened, prices have grown really quickly downtown. Demand is starting to sort of recalibrate itself. And we're starting to see investments really within the wider GTA market. And those small unit sizes that used to be pretty focused within the downtown area are now something you're starting to see across the 905. Like you're starting to see those small units really everywhere because it's coming down to a point where price point matters so much. And if you're looking at an average condo price at $600,000 for the GTA, anything that can come in below that price is in really strong demand. And, and, and as the, the, the price per units has changed over time, is that adjusted for unit sizes? What have you seen happen with unit sizes over the last couple of years? What's the, what's the buyer preference been that I'm sure the uh, developers have uh, followed? The preference has been on small unit sizes, I would say generally. You know, one-bedroom units that are compact, I would say, are, are still in strong demand. I think we've seen an increased share of studios starting to come into the market as well. For a time, developers were starting to shy away from, from studios, and they were, they were representing a really small portion of uh, an overall project's unit mix. And I think that kind of happened for a period as 
demand started coming in more towards the higher end of the market. And you started to see more downsizers looking for larger suites. And, you know, there was some aversion from banks to lend towards units below a certain size threshold. And I think, you know, just because of price point, investors were preferring that one bedroom unit that was, say, 500 or 550 square feet, as opposed to the studio that was, you know, 400 square feet. But with prices continuing to grow, because remember, while we saw a correction in a single-family home market in 2017, condo prices continued to grow uninterrupted. We've seen uninterrupted growth in the condo market for, for so many years that it got to a point where that overall price point was shifting demand more and more into these smaller suites. So we started to see you know, unit mixes with you know, 5 to 10% allocations of studios, where in the, you know, the past it was maybe you know, 2 or 3%. And within the, the one-bedroom segments, we started to see more demand shift towards compact one-bedroom plus dens, which have started to effectively operate as two-bedroom units. So those two-bedroom units, which used to be you know, 800 square feet, had gotten so expensive that you're starting to see demand for, I mean, they're, they're effectively being used as two-bedroom units, but they're technically one plus dens that are less than 700 square feet in a lot of cases. And the price premiums for those units are starting to grow higher than, you know, your standard one-bedroom unit that could only house one person. The fact that you can add that extra person into the den, which again is functioning as a second bedroom, is adding a further premium to that product type. And you're seeing that come through as well on the rental side as well. You know, if you can have two people in, roommates, they can split the costs. You can get, in effect, a higher rent per square foot for those one-plus dens, where in the past, one plus dens used to get the lowest price per square foot. Was it seen as a decadent use of space if there's only one person in there? Yeah, if, if there's only one person in a one plus den, obviously that impacts their uh, desirability and value from a price per square foot perspective. And typically those, those one plus dens do better in higher end markets than sort of downtown investor driven markets that, that typically see a high number of units being rented out. But within the downtown core market, the one plus den that's 640, 650 square feet, it's outstripping pretty much every other housing type with respect to price and rental appreciation. It depends on how you define den. Like I've seen some one plus dens where there's this four foot by four foot sort of corner. Like, look, it's a den. It's like, oh, that's, that's really just an unusable area. I'm not sure why you're calling that a den. You know, the developers really aren't doing that anymore. Okay. I don't see much of that. I, I recognize what you're saying. And that den, I wouldn't even call it a den as well. But the dens now are big enough to fit a bed and maybe a dresser. That's good enough, whoever wants to live in it, to you know, save costs on the rental side. Before we move into rents, and I, and I want to talk about rentals, and, and, and we want to talk about purpose-built, but I have one last question on, on sort of the condo side. One of the, one of the nice things about your industry or your, your research is you can kind of project forward because it takes so long to go from purchase to launch to development. What does 2021, 2022, maybe 2023 look like? Let's, let's assume COVID sorts itself out and we enter a next normal, whatever you want to call it. What does the supply look like? What are the projects that are kind of coming online look like? Well, it's a good question because it feeds right into what's happening in the rental market. So heading into uh, 2020, we were expecting a record year for condo completions in, in, in this year. In fact, it looked like based on scheduled occupancies that we could see 29,000 units reach completion, which would be a record by almost 10,000 units. The highest level I think that we've seen was 2014. We saw close to 21,000 completions. So we would be far surpassing any volume of new occupancies than the GTA has ever seen in terms of new condo deliveries. 
And we know that most of those units are pre-sold to investors. And if you look back historically, most of them do add them into the rental market. So there was going to be a lot of rental supply coming in this year. Now with construction being delayed, there being some disruptions, sites working with less labor on sites, productivity has slowed. But even with that, we're still seeing projects coming close to occupancy. We won't hit our 29,000 unit number that we were looking at uh, a few months ago, but it's very realistic at this point for us to see 20 to 25,000 occupancies in 2020. And we're already starting to see it happen. We've already seen up until now, towards the end of May, over 10,000 units complete, 7,000 just in the first few months of the year. And we could see another 10,000 by September. And as this has happened, more of these investor-held units are being offered for rent. And it's adding more supply to a market that's seeing demand decline. And, and, and rental demand is declining for a number of reasons, all related to, to, to COVID-19. The border closures are obviously impacting immigration. Immigration has been a huge driver for the rental market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the job losses that we're seeing is not creating as much household formation, obviously. Just you know, the uncertainty with what's happening in the economy is leading to less people wanting to rent a higher-priced unit, which is typically offered within the condo market. So as this has happened, we've seen some deflation in rents. Actually, I would say that we, we saw rents peak in around the third quarter of 2019. And even heading into this situation, I would say rents were starting to flatten out. As we saw the market reach close to $2,500 a month in average condo rent, it reflected a bit of a resistance level in the market. And demand started to slow. The market started to, to balance out. Rents were starting to flatten once COVID hit. And obviously, the supply started to continue to come into the market. It actually led to declines in rents for the first time in a number of years. And the first half of May, we saw average condo rents down 3.4% year over year. So not a massive decline, but we're starting to see it happen pretty quickly. And we're seeing some signs that that's going to continue. About half of all condos that are being leased in today's market are leasing for below asking rent and often being negotiated lower by about $100 a month. Sorry, can, you put, can you put per square foot rents on that? Sorry to cut you off. Can you put per square foot rents on that just for apples to apples? Yeah, it's about the same. So if you look at median rents, if you look at average rents, if you look at it on a per square foot basis, it's been declining by about the same amount. I will say that the segment of the condo rental market that's declining the most is the furnished market. And with Airbnb regulations coming in at the end of 2019 through the city of Toronto, and then short-term rentals being banned banned outright by the province in April, and obviously tourism shutting down, Airbnbs have effectively dried up as as a source of revenue for for those people who were using them as an investment. So as this has happened, we've seen new listings of furnished long-term condo rentals jump. And when we looked at the numbers for April, April 2020, furnished, so these would be furnished units that are offered on a a 12-month lease that were previously being used as short-term rentals, new listings were up 91% year over year. They actually now represent about 15% of the market, furnished units. So not insignificant. And when we looked at the rents on these units, they were dropping. They were down 10% year over year. And now within around $150 a month, an unfurnished unit. So you know, there, there's some changes in the market that are happening both on the supply side and the demand side. And unfortunately, they're happening at the same time. And it's leading to some, some downward pressure on, on condo rents. I can't say that the same sort of thing is happening, at least not yet, in the purpose-built space. 
So we track the purpose-built rental market. We mostly stick to the newer stock of rentals, so those that have been built within the last 10 to 15 years. And there hasn't been a lot of change there. Vacancy rates are, are still low. There hasn't been a lot of tenant turnover. The CERB payments, I think, are helping. The $2,000 a month are, are helping to uh, to keep uh, tenants in their units. And then, obviously, the ban on evictions and rental operators just you know, generally trying to maintain a good relationship with their tenants during this difficult time and, and working out payment plans haven't really led to a lot of vacancies, at least not yet. So there really hasn't been much of a need for purpose-built rents to, to adjust in an environment where we're still not seeing a lot of purpose-built rental units coming into the market in terms of new supply. For the projects that are still kind of in lease-up, that are you know striving to reach their goal of 95% occupancy, there has been some incentives that I would, I would say have been rolled out, but nothing too over the top, certainly nothing like we were seeing in Calgary over the last couple of years where rental operators were offering, you know, two, two and a half months of free rent here in Toronto. So far, what I've seen are things like a few hundred bucks off your first month's rent, I think is the most that I've seen. Some gift cards, free Netflix, that kind of stuff. Nothing, uh, nothing too aggressive. So I, I would say so far within the rental market, the changes that we've seen have been uh, mostly isolated to the condo sector. I'm going to jump into anecdotal evidence, which I know data guys hate, but I'll, I'll subject you to it anyway. I have been hearing anecdotally on the furnished suite fronts that uh, some really crazy low rent numbers have been evident, but I would think that that segment of the market is largely being managed by one-off or two-off owners, not large professional purpose-built rental management companies that are going to have a clear indication of where the market is. So would you agree with my anecdotal evidence that there would be a bit of a mismanagement of establishing rental rates due to the nature of one-off owners could potentially panicking to get their one unit rented up. Yeah, I, I agree. An interesting stat that we pulled up for this year was for the units that are set for occupancy in 2020, we calculated what their holding costs would be for an investor who bought this unit in, in pre-construction, taking into consideration that the units were bought you know, for maybe upwards of five years ago at prices that are much, much lower than today's prices. So when we looked at those prices for units that were coming up for occupancy this year, they pre-sold on average at 675 a foot. So like 40, 50% lower than today's prices. And when you factor in interest rates at two and a half percent or, or you know, sub three percent, wherever they are right now, and including, you know, a 25% down payment, condo fees, property taxes, these units that are reaching occupancy today could get $200, $250 a month in positive cash flow based on the rents that we were seeing in Q1 2020, right? So when you look at that, you say, okay, these investors, they have an incentive to hold on to these units and, and sort of ride this out in the rental market, but they'll also be able to adjust their rents lower very quickly to get the unit rented out as fast as possible in order to cover their mortgage costs as quickly as possible. Because like you said, they're individual investors, mom and pop investors. They're not professional management companies. They don't really have the ability to carry vacancy over a few months period. So they want to be able to get these units filled as quickly as possible. So when, in my mind, when I looked at that gap, I thought this creates room for rents to drop pretty quickly, right? $250 a month basically takes 10% off of the average rent. And the condo investor that's seeing their unit come to completion today is still able to achieve neutral cash flow even by dropping the rent a couple hundred dollars a month. Now, this is predicated on the assumption that these investors aren't 100% leveraged, right? I'm assuming that they're using 
25% of savings and, and, you know, they have a 75% loan to value and they're not using, you know, a HELOC or something like that to offset the rest of the down payment. But I would say for those that do have savings that they're putting in and their own equity that they're putting into the unit, there's not a lot of trouble, I would say, at least for this year, for those units that are reaching occupancy. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we're starting to see those rents drop very quickly. And if we were to look at the rents for the, the large buildings being operated by the large professional managers, you know, you mentioned the U-Track, new product coming on stream. What are you seeing there? And if you two-part question, you know, as it relates to the luxury market and what it, as it relates to the more common buildings. So with respect to the luxury market, not a lot of changes. The higher end projects that have come in in recent years have largely already reached stabilized occupancy. And by all accounts so far, we haven't seen a lot of turnover and not a lot of resulting vacancy. So I, I would say that lease velocity has certainly slowed down versus what it was um, you know, in the early part of the year. But we haven't seen a ton of, of change in vacant units within that higher end market. Now, there are some larger projects, which you could consider to be upper end. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them luxury, but they certainly are, you know, a, above the average condo rents that kind of got caught in their lease up period as COVID hit. You know, maybe they were 50 to 60% leased, some cases a little bit lower. So for those projects, I think that's where you're starting to see some of these incentives being offered because, uh, you know, they, they have their goals of reaching lease up within a certain number of months. And if they can offer an incentive to have somebody move into the unit, that's obviously a motivating factor for them. But nothing too dramatic on that front. But like I said, small incentives seem to be working. By all accounts, traffic is still coming in and, and viewing units, and uh, they are still leasing. But certainly the, um, the activity has dropped from, from where it was. You know, Sean, we spent a lot of time on the condo market. I kind of want to transition the conversation more towards purpose-built, which I know is kind of a newer focus for you and your team. What do you think 2020 looks like for new builds, units coming online, and how does this impact going forward? I mean, you know, I remember a conversation with you, it must have been 2017, 2018, where we were just still having the conversation about supplier demand and what's the problem with our apartment market. Clearly, it was a supply issue now. Everybody's realized that. Where is the supply coming? How much supply is coming? And how much of an impact is COVID going to have on that? So we have about... um just over 13,000 purpose-built rental units that are under construction uh, across the greater Toronto area right now. It sounds like a lot, but it's still a very small fraction of overall housing development in the GTA. In comparison to condos, there's there's 76,000 condos under construction. So the purpose-built rental industry is still sort of emerging from its lows, I would say, at this point. But it is at its highest level since modern rent controls were enacted in the 1970s. We are starting to see, obviously, some very good progress. And we've seen the supply pipeline of proposed developments reach above 60,000 units. So we're making progress. We're not at the level that we need in terms of satisfying the long-term demand and supply equation. But certainly, we were moving in the right direction in the pre-COVID period. Development applications have really dropped off a cliff since this has come in, which is what you would expect in uncertain times. There's not as many people that want to sort of progress their plans until they're, they're a little bit more certain with respect to the outlook for rents. because. Obviously, the difference between building a condo and a building a rental is that you have to kind of project where rents are going to be in the future, whereas a new condo project launches as, as a pre-sale and you lock in those prices. And I think for the most part, developers were carrying an assumption that rents would rise, you know, 3 4 5% per year. So by the time they reached completion, they would hit a certain rent level based on those inflation projections. 
And now with the rent trajectory changing, I think they're sort of reworking their pro formas to sort of better understand where rents are going to Rents are going to rest when the projects do reach occupancy. And for those that are early on in the planning stages, what sort of changes in in unit mix design should they be considering in light of of what's happening? So for this year, purpose-built rental completions are still going to remain pretty low. Less than 3,000 units will reach occupancy. Still, you know, mostly concentrated in central Toronto, which has been the case for projects that are under construction and those that are in the planning stage. But we are certainly starting to see a lot more attention to suburban sites that have seen a dramatic absence of purpose-built rental construction. And uh, I would say in a lot of cases, massive amounts of pent-up demand for professionally managed new rental properties. And we're starting to see more applications coming in for those sort of 905 outer 416 locations and a lot of larger developers looking to reposition their shopping malls. And I, I would say... That's one of the biggest parts of our business recently has been evaluating shopping centers across the region for uh, feasibility for for intensifying with purpose-built rental developments. So I think one thing you'll see coming out of this is a lot of purpose-built rental projects sprouting out on malls, not just within Toronto, but right across the 905 region. Some big master plan projects that are being announced and more that are being considered. And, and I can tell you that this is something that's going to be a major, major change for the market in the next uh, next 10 to 20 years. I mean, you talk about the rise of purpose-built sort of in the outer, outer side of, of the city. Is it simply the intensification of, of existing sites by, I mean, I, I know, of course, we've had Jonathan Gitlin of Rio Can talking about their plans to intensify lots of their sites. Is that the main driver or what, what else is driving that transition to outside of the Toronto core for purpose-built? It's demand as well. There's been growing demand for rentals in the 905 region and that's happened as we've seen rents in sort of the downtown area rise $2,600, $2,700 a month. We've seen some outflow of that demand into the 905 where, you know, you can rent the same size unit for $2,000 or $2,100 a month. And as that's happened, we've seen rent levels in the 905 region reach $3 a square foot or in some cases even higher than $3 a square foot. So they start to make economic sense to actually build. And it's not just on existing commercial assets, but you know, intensifying existing purpose-built rental sites that have access density that would allow for, you know, another building or another couple buildings, as well as just sort of, you know, new land development that may have been considered as condo in the past is now being considered for purpose-built rental. And I think it's because of the fact that there is demand. and, And I think the condo market has shown us that secondary units can trade at pretty significant rent levels that in some cases are even comparable to what you see in Toronto. And if you can get a discount on the land from being out in the, in the suburban region, but still achieve a pretty close rent level to what you would see downtown, the numbers work for the first time in a long time. It, you know, it's been a long time coming and, and, you know, we needed to see that growth in rents that we've seen over the last five to six years, which in some years were in the double digits, to allow rents to get to a point where they're starting to make economic sense to build. Well, after so many years of pretty flat uh, rental growth and then and then a few good ones. I hope that the recent COVID break from rental growth doesn't put people into a more conservative mode in their pro formas for 21, 22, 23. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Sean, this has been a ton of great info. Before we let you go, we want to ask you one more question. And it would probably be more the art side of the business than the science that uh, you, you normally live on. Out of all the sites that you examine and you're looking at now, 
do you have a personal favorite or one that's the most interesting to you? Not necessarily that you'd even buy into as an investor or to live, but just something that really kind of captivated your imagination outside of you know data metrics. I am impressed with a lot of the studies that we've done for large master plan new communities in the GTA. And, and I think we overlook some of these very large sites that exist outside of the downtown market that can accommodate thousands of new residents. And the planning that's going into these new developments is really impressive to me. They're all about making a, a new community. And, and it's not like just throwing up a bunch of towers and then trying to figure out you know, the retail and, 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 and the community aspects after. It's planning it all from the onset. And I, I think we've learned from some mistakes in the past about doing it the opposite way and seeing new communities being planned, you know, along the waterfront, you know, whether it be in Mississauga or, or you know, even out to the east end in the Durham region. This is sort of a new frontier where we're going to see meaningful intensification in the coming years. And, you know, the fact that there's just so, so much careful planning that's going into it and, you know, thinking about community elements, integration with transit, all of those sort of things, I think to me has is, is been, been really, really enlightening. I've obviously never been a developer, but I have always thought to do a large master plan community where you're involved in creating literally, you know, as the word says, a community would be super interesting. And long after you sold it off, there would probably still be a lot of personal attachment to it. So I, I definitely get the point of, of what you're saying. We're going to wrap it up now. I want to thank Sean for coming on. This is his third appearance. He joins a short but illustrious list of people that have made three appearances. And I'm sure we can talk him into a fourth at some point when we get into our post-COVID world. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast. And of course, all the listeners for listening. Always glad to have you here. Before we go, I want to say thanks, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.